and welcome to the Blind Shots Podcast. I'm your host, David Hill, coming to you from the 11th Fairway at Muirfield Village, wondering whether this really is better than Valhalla or exactly the same. And this is Season 3, Episode 15. On today's episode, we class up the joint a bit by welcoming author, writer, golfer, and native Kentucky and gone rogue, Michael Crowley. Michael grew up in Corbin, Kentucky, but now lives in the Columbus, Ohio area, shaping the minds of tomorrow as an assistant professor of English and journalism at Denison University. His first book, Any Other Place, was honestly a a weighty collection of raw yet complicated stories about place, belonging, desperation, and resignation, which I enjoyed thoroughly, if not unexpectedly. I don't read a lot of fiction. But Michael's stories, some of which he would admit are autobiographical in origin, they got to me. As punishment for getting me emotionally involved in something I read, Michael agreed to chat golf and other things with me on the record today. In addition to his creative writing, Michael's also worked the golf journalism beat for more than a handful of publications, and is currently researching equipment reviews for Bloomberg. On a personal note, he was my editor for my Park Mammoth piece that appeared in McKellar in 2021. We have a long-standing Cubs fan-like mythical future date at Kearney Hill. Each of us convinced that this is going to be the year that it happens, in perpetuity. I'm accumulating an uncomfortable number of these calling cards, frankly, so I hope he and I get to cash ours in soon. Since we have no golf tales to tell on each other, I hope you'll enjoy this conversation with Michael wherein we discuss his writing journey, golf as a useful metaphor, the idea that you ain't from around here no more, and honoring, honoring legacies. Before that, though, remember that you're invited to interact with this show on Twitter at Blind Shots Pod as well as on Instagram. Take a minute and find Michael on Twitter at MJ underscore Crowley, C-R-O-L-E-Y. Give him a follow and keep an eye out for his articles in golf. They are exceptional. There will be links in the show notes to his book and several of his articles. A reminder that while this show is a proud member of the Talking Golf Network of Shows under the dictatorial authoritarianism of award-winning podcaster Rod Morey, this Blind Shots podcast is sponsored exclusively by me, David Hill. In addition to playing, talking, and riding about golf, I'm a licensed Kentucky realtor with Rector Hayden Realtors. I work with homeowners buying and selling their homes, and also with investors and businesses on their commercial property needs here in central Kentucky. You can find my contact information at davidhill.rhr.com. If you have a real estate question, if you want to know what a realtor can do for you, reach out to me and we can start a conversation. And now, a conversation with Michael Crowley. Can you even name all the publications you have submitted and published work in? golf or otherwise uh yeah okay <laughs> that, <laughs> I, don't that's know I don't know if anybody cares but yeah <laughs> well you, you do get around you're a published writer published author um i w- your first book is what is approaching two years old is that right three years old actually three years old any In other April. any other place um i've read it i enjoyed it i have some strong feelings about it <laughs> um, I do. It's a story about, you know, place and belonging and quiet yeah. desperation and, and resignation. Tell my listeners a little bit about Fordyce, Kentucky. 
So four to us is just a, uh, you know, it's just a, a fictional version of Corbin, Kentucky, where I grew up, which is about 75 miles south of where you are there in Lexington. And, um, you know, I was kind of fortunate or I was, well, I, I was smart enough to realize that I didn't have to write about other places when I started out as a writer. So as a professor of English, students are always trying to write about places they don't really know anything about, usually New York, right? And they've never been to the city. They've never been to Central Park. And somehow they think that's weightier and more interesting than the places where they grew up or were from. And from early on, I knew that wasn't the case. And I kind of knew at a certain point, I, I, I wanted to use landmarks or things that were near home, but I didn't want it to be home because uh, then you're kind of, you're, you're, um, you are uh, bound by the geography of the region. And so sometimes you want to put stuff other places. Like I might want to put something that's in London in Fordyce, right? Because it's not in Corbin, right? So that was kind of why I did it too. And so you try to do this thing where you're creating an, another world that's based off a world you know. Uh, but by, by, by just that kind of weirdly, that one degree of separation, you can do a lot. If that makes sense. It does. And so that was so Fordyce is like Corbin. It's it's a it's a middle class town. I mean, one of the things that people don't understand about Appalachia is like there are a lot of middle class people there. There are doc there are doctors and there are lawyers and there are uh, pharmacists and bankers and you know professional. There is a professional class, and I think one of the things that I was always interested in my work was obviously interested in blue collar jobs but if you look at the stories a lot of those people are actually sort of you know white collar people teachers uh you know a professional class people have gone to college and have chosen to be back there and i think there's a narrative around appalachia that's often that people are stuck there they can't get out they want to get out and that's not um i don't think that's fair to the region and i don't think it's fair to the people that choose to have their lives there you know um a lot of people go off to college at uk and they come right back a lot of people go off to college and they go to med school or they go to law school and they come right back you know i mean they want to be there and so i've always tried to sort of show the totality of the region um so i mean i think that's what i would say about fordice is it's 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 a version of home to me so well let me ask you this one does fordice have a country club because golf does not golf does not figure prominently in your first uh your first book michael no no yeah we didn't there's not a lot of golf in there at all um no well i mean there was only one country club when i was growing up there was no the, it was called the tri-county country club which was actually in closer to barbaraville than uh corbin and um I, it actually is in knox county and um you know, golf was not something we did growing up. You know, I mean, <clears throat> I don't mean this pejoratively, so I don't want to take it the wrong way. But, you know, golf is one of the sports when I was growing up, people might have thought you were gay if you played it. You know, I mean, in sort of that very masculine machismo way, yeah. you know, of uh, 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 things there or that you were rich. You know, I mean, that's not how I ever thought of the game, but I'm just saying that would have been the pejorative tag thrown at it, right? So, Did, did soccer get that too? A little bit, yeah. Soccer kids were considered soft, but I played soccer. It came in when I was in fourth or fifth grade, maybe sixth grade, and I played it because I knew it would make me a better athlete. 
you know, for, for, uh, eye foot coordination. So I, and I actually liked it. I mean, I, I mean, we, it, it was weird, but it, it did, it had a very negative connotation associated. It wasn't a tough masculine sport, you know, and I, and golf was very much viewed as a country club sport. And it was the rich kids in town who's, you know, whose parents were doctors and lawyers and insurance salesmen, you know, that could afford it. They were members at the country club and it had a nice pool. And I mean, at the time it seemed like a nice pool. I think in reality, it wasn't as yeah. grand as we thought. Right. And go the back, golf course, go, golf go back course, and see that pool now. <laughs> right, the golf course certainly was not as grand as I thought it was as a kid when I got on there a few times with my buddies, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was not something that we did. It's something that I came to in my twenties after I was out of college and, uh, you know, only really played it because of my brother who had taken it up when he was in graduate school. So yeah, not a lot of golf and uh, there probably is a country club, but it's, it, I probably won't explore it in any of my future fiction that's set in Fort Ass. <laughs> well, that's per- obviously perfectly fine. I would just point out, I, th- I think when I thought about this question, you know, I think a lot of the themes of your stories kind of apply to golf imposter syndrome, you know, from, from the, the newcomer, the first couple of times at a course to somebody visiting the country club feels like everybody's eyes are crawling all over them. Yeah. Do you, do you have that in your own golf game or were you able, you know, seeing how golf, mm-hmm. what golf was for you growing up, how it was looked yeah. at, um, how did you meet the game sort of sure. with that connotation? Uh, yeah, that's a good, that's a great question, actually. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I had all those things and everyone has those things in the, if you don't grow up around the game and you don't grow up in a country club, I mean, I've been fortunate, as you know, to visit some pretty nice places and I still feel a little weird when I walk in those places, you know, like I was at Columbia country club in November. And I mean, I didn't have to go in the clubhouse or anything, but I, I kind of worry, like, I don't want to do anything wrong. I don't want to mess up. I don't want my host to get someone pulling. Hey, what's that guy doing that you brought out here? You know I mean? I do worry about those things still, but, you know, I mean, we played a lot of public courses and uh, played a lot of resort courses, you know, at good places. And um, my brother had learned the game and, and, you know, he was always kind of there. So I just kind of followed his cues and kind of learned the etiquette from him and other people that we were with learned to play fast. That was a big thing. Play fast. If you don't play well, play fast, you know, which we always did. Um, and then, you know, and I, and I think that's the biggest thing that I learned is like, if you play fast and you have good manners, that's fine. You know, I mean, I was at a clubhouse once and I, and I'd been in there for like an hour and a half, like talking to people, there was a big gathering. And, and after about an hour and a half, I realized I was the only one still had my hat on, you know, but no one had said anything to me. Cause they I didn't want to, they didn't want to make my, you uncomfortable. You know, that good on them for being yeah, I mean, I mean, it was a public facility, but I noticed that I was the only one that still had my hat on. So I, I, you know, I took my hat off and I, I just didn't occur to me, you know. Um, so, I, you know, I tried to be more mind. So that was one of those moments where you like, you know, I didn't feel weird about it, but I just like, OK, just be mindful of that. And so a lot of times now I'll do it, you know, um, and just, you know, just to be safe kind of thing, you know, <laughs> Um but yeah, I mean, I, I think if you just kind of follow the lead, I think most people that, I mean, as you know, like, you know, having played the game for a long time now, if you get a newcomer in your group, I try really hard to make them feel comfortable. Yeah, take, overdo take, it. Yeah, take three off the first team. Take your time. There's no rush. I'm just out here for the walk, you know, and letting them know that how they play is not affecting me is really important. 
and sort of just trying to make them feel comfortable because I, you know, we all remember what that was like. It's a difficult game. I mean, that's what's so marvelous to me about golf is like, I don't care how good you are at basketball or football or soccer or whatever. We all suck at golf unless you're on the tour are you are you've been an elite college player and i and i would categorize an elite college player as like d2 and above you're probably not very good you're going to shank one during the round probably you know i mean like it's gonna happen and so uh golf and you should look at golf as like a great equalizer like a great equalizer of humanity right <laughs> like doesn't matter how much money you got doesn't have how much money you don't have doesn't matter how much ability you have or don't have like we're all gonna like you're all gonna mess up throughout the course of four hours so you should enjoy the walk and, and try to and hopefully you have good playing partners that you like spending time with so yeah the the who versus the where is an interesting dichotomy yeah um why golf? Man, you're a talented storyteller and a talented writer. But sure. how did how did you choose, or did golf choose you uh, in a professional capacity? Oh uh, well, that was really just me trying to write golf off of my taxes. Okay, so, did it work? I mean, I, I was pretty now, mercenary. Now you're, pretty, you're you're talking my language now. I, I was I've, pretty mercenary about it, right? Like I wanted to. I'm a humanities professor, so not a lot of money in this gambit, right? And I wanted to be able to go. I wanted to be able to go to places that I otherwise might not be able to afford. So I thought, well, you know, maybe I can get a magazine to send me. Maybe I can do that. And so I got very fortunate. I had a guy who worked for the Rob Report who was taking my class. We had this oh, thing called Community Scholars at Denison. And he wanted to work on a novel. So he showed up in class. He told me who he was. And he had gotten a degree in creative writing many years ago and had studied with one of my former professors. So I said, hey, man, could you help me out with some pitches? I, I said, I don't know how to do it. Like I said, you don't have to introduce me to editors. I wasn't asking him for that. I was like, I just don't know the nuts and bolts of how to do a pitch. And he's like, I'd be happy to. And I'm happy to introduce you to editors, too. And I was like, well, OK. So he introduced me to an editor at the Rob Report. And um, our my wife was pregnant with our first child. And I got a, I got an email from this editor at the Rob Report. This was two, this has been 20, 2015. And he says, can you go to the Greenbrier tomorrow? They're going to do a press conference with Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, uh, Gary Player, and Lee Trevino. They're building a new course. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> so, so I, I mean, I'd never, done, I'd never done it before. I mean, I had no idea really what I was doing. But, I, they, you know, I got on a plane. I flew to Greenbrier from the Columbus Airport. I flew to Greenbrier, West Virginia. It was weird, you know, they're like, so okay. um, it, it's changed now. Like, you know, I can't do that kind of stuff because I write for Bloomberg and the Times now. But the, but at that time, you know, they have marketing budgets. So Greenbrier paid for the flight and put me up and all that. But I didn't know how any of that worked. I mean, I really, I had no idea. So I asked the lady, I think she thought it was hilarious. I said, should I bring my golf clubs? And she goes, we don't, she goes, well, I mean, she goes, I don't know if you're going to have time to play golf, but if you want to, I was like, well, I said, I've never done it before. So if there's no time, but I said, but if I could get in some golf, that would be great. You know what I mean? That was the whole point of doing it, right? <laughs> so, so, so I took my clubs with me and they got me onto the members course, which is like, I think it's called the Sneed course mm -hmm. the members. And uh, I played like, I got to play 11 holes with some members. And they knew I was with the magazine, so they were trying really hard to impress me and make sure I wrote a good article and all that kind of stuff. And uh, but it was it was cool. I mean, it was neat. It was a good introduction to it. And then, like you know, I I didn't really meet 
those legends, but I was about, I was like, I stood four feet away from Palmer and it was early in the morning. And I remember he went in front of the bus that had brought him over so he could get warm by the engine because he was a little cold. And I was gonna, uh, and I remember he looked up, like he just looked up and it was like, it was so weird because like you've seen so many photo or uh, videos of him hitting the ball and then looking up, you know? So it was just wild to sort of see him like look up at the sky <laughs> and I was going to introduce myself, but I decided at the last minute not to. So that was the first thing I did. And that was a hundred words. <laughs> that's wow. all they wanted. I did all, they did all that stuff for a hundred words. Like that's all they get. It might've been 200, but it wasn't much, you know, I mean, it was like 200 words max. Literally a blurb. That's like, two paragraphs yeah so i did a lot of stuff for rob report for a long time then they went through an editorial shakeup, and um and then i kind of dried up but during that time was when i wrote the long piece on tom doak that was actually not in a golf magazine at all but was in a literary journal who wanted to do a sports issue and i was talking to the editor there and i said look do you have like she had she had published some stuff at CNN and some other places. And I was like, I was like, can I run a pitch by you? Because I just can't get anybody to pick it up. I was just asking her for advice. And she said, Oh, I think we would do that. And um, I was like, really? She goes, well, we're going to do a sports issue. I was like, well, okay. So she gave me more room and more money than anybody else would have for that pitch. I mean, short like golf digest or, or golf magazine, you know? And so that thing was supposed to be like 2000 words and I turned it in at 4,000 words and they ran it at 4,000 words. Wow. And, um, or it might've been 2,500 words and I turned it in at 4,000, but she ran it at length. And I had to, in the first edits were like, she just beat the hell out of it. And then I went back into it and I just redid the whole thing. And she, I sent it back. She goes, these edits are awesome. And, um, and so that kind of became the thing. And then, after that, I was kind of off to the races in a way. Uh, the guys at Golfers Journal saw that, reached out to me, and they brought they brought that piece. They brought the first piece I did for them was about Anthony Ravielli, um, who was the illustrator for Ben Hogan's book. They brought that piece to me, and then Tom Dunn at McKellar reached out to me, and he brought the Shell's Wonderful World of Life, um, uh, Wonderful World of Golf. He he brought that to me too. Nice. And then after that, I just started pitching and you just, I don't know, man, it's like you get thrown in the river. You just start swimming as fast as you can. So you're, you're still waiting on all the good golf that you get to play for these assignments is what you're telling me. Pretty much. Pretty much. I got, I got to go to Pinehurst for Bloomberg after a few years, I, I started working for Bloomberg and I, I pitched them a Pinehurst story and I got, I got to go to Pinehurst and, uh, it was kind of a bittersweet thing because my brother's test results for his cancer were like a week out, but he got to go with me. And that was great because we were like, you know, we were on the Bloomberg expense account and my editor knows. <laughs> so if he if he ever knew, he would be upset about it. You know, I mean, he, he understood, but like, but it was great. You know, we got to go and, um, and you know, the, you know, the room was paid for, you know, you know, uh, the, my food was paid for, you know, it was expensed, you know, so it, that's it was a good awesome. start. Yeah, we had, I mean, that that part was like, that was like, oh, this is what's going to happen, you know, and, but they've only ever let me do that one time. They've never (laughs) let me go anywhere else since then. But, but it was, um, although it was kind of a bittersweet experience because he he did get diagnosed with cancer a week later. I think as time goes on, I'm I'm glad we had that trip together before, before, you know, we got that bad news. And, um, but yeah, I mean, that was kind of why I did it. And then, 
but yeah, I haven't really got to do a lot of travel pieces. It's kind of, I keep trying, I keep pitching them, but COVID has put, I think I would have been able to do more, but I think COVID, mm-hmm. COVID did throw a big wrench in a lot of that. There were some places that I think Bloomberg would have been interested in. I could have gone to, but they didn't want to send anywhere with COVID because no one was really traveling during COVID. So why write a travel piece? Right? Like golf was booming, but it was booming right down the street, right? And around right. the corner. Exactly. So we did a lot of those pieces. So you've mentioned them a couple of times your brother, Tim, hey, tell me a little bit about golf and Tim. I don't want you to spill the beans. I know you've got all <laughs> kinds of, hey, but I could just walk out of the room and, and let you go, but tell me a little bit about, yeah, you, I'll try you, to be brief golf. About, you know, Tim was a, Tim was a great athlete. You know, as he got, you know, he was a good athlete growing up and he's kind of a late bloomer in a way too. I mean, he he was a good athlete in high school, but he got a lot better. He was young. He graduated 17, but uh, he got hurt playing pickup basketball and he asked the doctor, he says, uh, when can I play basketball again? And the guy laughed at him. I mean, blown out his ankle. He tore like two tendons, you know, and he's like, you might be able to walk 18 holes of golf in six months. And my brother's like, I don't play golf. He goes, well, you might want to think about it. So he went and got some clubs. He was at Mississippi State. They have a PGM program down there. Mm-hmm. And he just worked with a couple of the guys down there that they're in the program, just kids, you know what I mean? Yeah. And they taught him a couple things. And he, he just had like this self-taught swing, but it was really long and loopy and athletic, you know, and just like a lot of power. I mean, he was 6'3", and he had really big calves. Like, I mean, he got, he got his legs into it a lot. I mean, he just, he just had, and he had great hands, he had great hand-eye coordination. And he just had, like, great power as a, as a self-taught golfer. I mean, he would hit the ball, and it would just – you could hear it in impact. It just would come out whistling, you know, just mm-hmm. – I mean, he had this great, great, great low sort of boring ball flight. Then it would get really high, you know. Um, so he – I took it up because of him. I mean, it was a way for us to spend time together – we played a lot of basketball together in our twenties because we lived together too for a couple of years. We played a lot of hoops together, but even then, you know, my knees would hurt when I got done. I thought, well, this is going to be the way because I didn't want to take it up. I thought, I mean, I made fun of him relentlessly when he took it up for all those dumb, immature reasons I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. It's all, what's wrong with you? You think you're too good to be around us now? Like all that stuff. You And, um, but you know, it was through him that I learned, all the things about golf that I think we all love. Like I learned, you know, cause he, you know, he started reading about it he was the one that got me into architecture. So I learned about the interesting nature of architecture. I learned about sort of the egalitarian roots of golf in Scotland through books that he had read that I picked up, you know, and, and what he and I valued on the golf course was, was being together. We liked walking. We didn't like, I mean, we would ride like it's hot in Virginia in the summer. So you, you take a cart then, but we tried to walk as much as we could. And, you know, another thing about my brother was, I mean, he wasn't a, he wasn't a big drinker, but you know, we didn't drink on the golf course. Cause like for us, it was like a sport, like you wouldn't drink playing pickup hoops. So why would you drink playing golf? Yeah. So it wasn't a social game for us that way. It was social in the sense that we were together and just like when we were kids in the backyard playing hoops, it was like competitive that way. And he used to laugh because I, I I think I only beat him like four times in my life. And every time I did, we'd be in the car together and I would call home and I'd be like, mom, I just want you to know I beat Tim at golf today. And he'd roll his eyes, you know, and, uh, and she would, and then she'd go, well, I love you both. I mean, it's great. <laughs> I love you both. But I would do that like every single time because it happened so rarely, you know, um, and so that was why, I mean, it was just a way to spend time with him. And, um, 
part of the writing thing too at first because you know we didn't have kids or anything like that i thought it'd be a way for us to go take some trips together and see some places we couldn't see together and then even while he was still with us, it then became a way for me to take my family to places and, and see some stuff and travel and get to do some things. And so that, that's been sort of a, a fortunate part of, uh, of doing this is being able to do some stuff for the kids and for my life too. What's left on your, your golf to-do list as far as where, as far as places that you want to oh, take, well, take the family I got, or yeah, I, I know you're heading I, out West. Yeah. I mean, I want to go out to Bandon. I'm going out to Bandon in April of 23. I mean, I'd love to go to Scotland, but I, I want, I mean, I want that to be a trip when my kids are older and then we can all go and, um, and that, you know, they can play a few rounds with me and I can play maybe a few by myself. I mean, I, as, as I get older and think about it, I mean, there's only, you know, I either want them to go with me or I kind of want to go by myself, like with no one else, <laughs> you know, I, I would take a golf trip with a couple of friends of ours that were kind of our core foursome, like, but, if, but I, I kind of, I'm not completely opposed to the idea. So if you want to go somewhere, Dave, you should keep me posted. But like, if, if like don't. Rob and Skip, these two guys that played with us don't want to go, then I'm kind of okay going by myself. Golf has always been pretty meditative for me. It's a good way for me to get out and think about the fiction I want to write typically, or it's a good way for me to reflect on my life. Like I don't, I don't, um, I don't veer into that golf as a spiritual game territory too much, but I definitely think it's meditative for me. I like being outside. I like being in nature. I like thinking about things I got to do. I like thinking about my stories a lot. Um, so yeah, so Scotland is a, is a big one. Like after I get banned and knocked out, Scotland is a, is a, is probably a big one for me. And then, um, you know, I mean, you know, I, I, I would play Pebble beach, but I don't know that it's at the top of my list. Like I'm not dying to get out there. Uh, I'd much rather like figure out some way to get on Cypress point, you know? Well, of course. Right. But, you know, but I'm also like, but, you know, like I'm, I'd be good with just walking Cypress Point. Like I don't have to play it. If someone would just, you know, like stuff like that is kind of important to me as I get older too. Like I like playing a lot, but like just being out there is kind of nice sometimes. Um, yeah. But, get, get out there. We did our honeymoon. We split it between the Carmel area and San Francisco and I didn't yeah. play. I, I knew better. I didn't play, <laughs> yeah. but we went, we went and grabbed some drinks at the, the bar at Pebble beach and just, we were there at like three or four in the afternoon and just watch people finish at 18. And it's, you've got that yeah, ocean and the beach is so cool. Yeah. I mean, we went to Charlottesville over the summer and uh, they had just renovated Birdwood. And I had some friends there, so I, I played, but you know, the best part of that trip was they put a new putting, putting course in there. And it was late. It was late in the evening. Nobody was out there. And like the kids could run all over the putting course and they could hit a few putts or not hit some putts. And then the best thing was they'd shut the range down. And so it was like dusk. And like, I asked the guy, I was like, can they run on this range? He goes, as long as they don't run over here, where we're working. I don't care. So nice. they just like tuck off down the range or like rolling down the hill and stuff, you know? And, um, that was probably like my, you know, that's probably one of my best memories of being on a golf course was like just that, what you're talking about, just kind of being around it is, is good for me. I'm not a big, um, I'm not like, a. I don't want to say like I'm not a trophy hunter about the top 100 or anything like that, but I'm kind of not like, right. I just like, I mean, I like playing nice places, but I like playing golf. Well, you mentioned that you're fine going alone and I'm, I get more that way, the older I get, but uh, you mentioned a couple of buddies that are kind of golf trip regular. So let me ask you this. Are your golf friends a separate tribe? Is that a segregated part of your life? Here, here's my premise. 
the older I, the older I get, yeah, the less important folks from further back yeah. have gotten. It's just the way my, I don't see my college buddies as much. I don't see the people I went to grad school to law school with nearly as much. You know, when I'm planning a little bit of of dad time, I've got that little tiny piece of the pie. Right. is it's my golf guys, whether yeah. we're playing golf or not. So is that something you found? Yeah, or- I guess that's kind of true. I mean, that, that's true to some degree. I mean, I think like, um, I mean, I'm segregated in that I have like, I have like my professional colleagues in the riding world, right? That, you know, um, you know, I'm fortunate. I mean, I mean this because like it doesn't happen a lot, but like, you know, they're all English creative writing professors like me. And they like sports. Like you just, you don't see that a lot. You just don't. I mean, it's just kind of a, it's. That's an interesting Venn diagram. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, so I have like that, but they, they're not into golf. So I have my golf friends and I have them. And then I have people from college that I sort of keep up with sporadically, but they don't golf either. So like the golf part of my life was always kind of located with Tim and the golf trip. I didn't, I never really had any friends. I don't, until I moved to Columbus, I didn't have any friends of my own that I played golf with. You know, they were all kind of associated with the golf trip. So that's part of why I always played by myself. And now, you know, I live in an area where like, you know, Ryan Book, you know, Beth Page, Black Metal, you know, mm-hmm. he lives in Columbus. And then Jason Liebert, who does the golf, does golf photography and posts his stuff on Twitter and Instagram. Like he and I played uh, just before uh, the new year. I mean, you know, October, I mean, it's fall golf. But I mean, I met those guys online, you know, and, um, and so, yeah, I mean, they are kind of, they're just separate worlds for me, you know, and my golf world that is not located with the guys on the golf trip is all from online. Like you and I've never actually met in person. That's right. (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm hoping to remedy that. (laughs) Yeah. We're going to make it happen this year, but I mean, that's been kind of a weird, interesting thing about to me, you know, being at the forefront of social media when I was in graduate school, like it never occurred to me that you would ever actually meet people through social media and they would become your friends. Right. Like it just seemed like a way to keep up with your other friends. Yeah, it, it was once people started moving away, started starting their lives after school, it was a way just to keep in touch, follow yeah. and. Right, right. And so that's been kind of an interesting thing that I've met a lot of people from from social media and then the writing stuff has allowed me to meet a lot of people and become friends with them. And so that's been kind of cool. And so I guess like, uh, and yeah, so the worlds are kind of, they're kind of merging in in a weird way. (laughs) Now you are on the hook right now for some equipment reviews for Bloomberg. Yeah. yeah. Well, business insider, right. Business insider Bloomberg. You've done some travel pieces. You've done some, some first person, um, Mm -hmm. with essays. Is there a, a golf story out there? that you, you want to write that you just haven't yet, or that you had, that hasn't found you yet, like a type of story? No, not really. I mean, you know, the stuff I'm interested in, people are already doing at most of the places you'd want to do it. So it's, it's kind of hard. So like with Bloomberg, I have to try to find interesting things. And I mean, they kind of give me free reign. If I make a good pitch, you know, and I can sort of show how to work for their audience, then they'll usually give it to me, but there's nothing I'm really sort of, dying to tell the story of i mean there's a couple things i'm interested in that i would like to talk about like here in ohio you know renee powell is up in canton ohio and her father you know was built the golf course you know he built it by himself in the evenings you know and he's 
and I think I have this right. He's the first African American to build his own golf course, you know, and like no one's really written about that. And um, but you know, talking to a couple editors, like they don't think that's just they don't think that's enough of a hook. I'm like, I don't know what else do I need. <laughs> you know, what, what, what else do we have to talk about? I mean, it doesn't even matter if the course is architecturally interesting. Like he did this in his spare time because he loved golf so much, right? And so and those are the those are the courses that are disappearing too. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, and she's a Hall of Famer. Yeah. You know, like she runs that course and she's a Hall of Famer. And so she's trying to keep it alive and she does lots of other so I mean she's sort of been covered a little bit, you know, kind of here and there, but nothing like real in depth about her. So that's one story I have, which reminds me I need to repitch that to to a different magazine I haven't pitched to before. Uh that just asked me to submit some stuff. Um, so that's probably the one that I'm thinking about the most. I'm really interested these days, I think. Uh, from teaching a sports writing class here at Denison, I'm really sort of interested in the ways, uh, and it goes with some other reporting I've done too, just uh, inclusivity in golf, but not giving it lip service, but really trying to find ways to make the game of golf have a bigger tent. You know, I mean, the knock on golf of being too rich, too white, too elitist, uh, too snobby, however you want to put it, you know, I think that's still largely kind of true. I don't go in for this like woke golf stuff, you know, like I'm not against it necessarily, but I just, I just think that the world's changing. And one of the things that I find, one of the things I think is really interesting about golf is that what we were talking about earlier is you get to spend a lot of time with people. Oh, and that's the hook for me. That And what's what, and I mean, you know, I would say like I'm a social animal, but what, what is the number one problem in our country right now is we don't spend time with anybody. We spend time online, we spend time in our own silos, and we don't get to spend time with people and and just sort of be around them as people, you know, get struggle their, to do the same thing. Get right? their basically undivided attention for either, you know, for nine holes for up to two hours or right. you know, maybe four hours if you're walking slowly right. on a weekend. Right. And that can cut both ways, right? Like I had a caddy at a resort that will not be named who like want to talk my head off about the 2016 election. And not in the way I wanted to talk about it. And I don't really know why he wanted to talk about it. You know, I mean, I felt, I, I felt offended that I had to pay him at the end of that round and give him a tip. You know what I mean? Like I almost told him to leave. Like you just walk on, I'll carry my bag from here. Cause I'll pay for you to be away from me at this point, you know? Um, but cause he wasn't, I mean, he was just kind of talking at me, you know what I mean? Like, I don't want to talk about this. And, um, but I think like, you know, I mean, that's one of the things I like about golf. And I do think the mental challenge of it's important as long with the physical challenge of it, you know, and uh, I think it's a great game for testing yourself. I think it's a great game for being honest with yourself, for measuring yourself against like, your, you know, your abilities. And it's a great game like to work on to get better. Like I find that part really kind of fascinating and fun too. Like, um, so, I mean, I, cause I feel like, you know, you can see the improvement. Right. When you get better, you can see the improvement. You can see the improvement in your scores and you can see the improvement in your ball flight. You know, you can feel it. And so I just think like it's a I think it's a good game. Like I'm I'm hopeful that my kids will play in part because I'd like for them to be out there with me. And, you know, my wife wants us all to do it together. And I'm all for that, too. Um, But I I think it's a good game for them to sort of be honest with yourself because the ball doesn't lie. Right. 
And I think like I like that part of I like that part of golf too that the ball doesn't lie and that it's largely a challenge. You're only being challenged by yourself. Sometimes the elements, but mostly yourself. And it's given to former athletes like ourselves. Like I was, I was a cage rat. I'm a washed up baseball player with with one shoulder left. And, Mm -hmm. but it, the free time I had, I mean, I worked at a a batting cage. I would catch pitching lessons for people. It was, so what, if I wasn't fishing, which was my little Zen escape, I was at the batting cage. Now, guess what? Get the kids to bed and it's still open with lights. I'm out at the range. I'm chipping, putting, or just getting exercise. I'm rage. I'm just rage hitting balls to get the stress of the day off of me. Yeah. I haven't really made much progress in life. I'm doing this. It's a different sport, but it's the same thing. Yeah, no, but it's helpful. I mean, there's a really great essay in the New York times uh, yesterday, the day before about this guy, he got COVID and uh, so he had to go quarantine by himself. And there was like an old hoop out. It was like his, his father-in-law who just passed away. So he had to go stay in the garage at the father-in-law's house because they're preparing to sell it. But he just would go out to the backyard where there was a basketball hoop and shoot by himself. And it reminded him of being a kid and how that was a meditative thing for him, just shooting hoops, you know. And it's the same thing, you know, like the repetitive motion of it, you know, but also concentrating on certain things. But, like, I love it, man. You can I can put it in a podcast or I could be in my own head and you can do that. And, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, it's the same thing. It's just a way to sort of keep testing yourself, you know. It is. You mentioned earlier, you know, seeing social media grow and how that has changed the world. The world has definitely gotten smaller in the last 20 years since yeah. I guess you and I both kind of left home and went off to college. Right. Has the best you can tell, has Appalachia's story changed along with it in that last 20 years? Are they are they keeping up? Because I've I've just discovered mountain golf in the last decade. I fell in love oh, with yeah. some of the new courses over there. Um, right. and some of the old ones that I'm finding sure. are, are fun, but just kind of from that you've been from a distance, but still connected. Is it like, I understand the need for broadband everywhere. Now I went down and played in the, the LIT down in Lynch and right. I didn't have cell service until I got back to Harlan each day. Right. Like, oh, yeah. Okay. I kind of, this makes sense now. I, I understand having yeah, been down sure. there. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I try to be careful about this cause I've been gone so long. I don't want to step on anybody's toes. Like, I don't really feel like I'm an expert. I don't feel qualified to talk about Appalachia sometimes, you know, I, okay. I feel very qualified to talk about my Appalachian experience, but <laughs> since I left, you know, I, I feel a little, there's a really good novel by a guy named Jim Wayne Miller, who has a character in his novel, it's called the uh, Newfound. Okay. And, uh, and in that novel or new, he might call it Newfound, but uh, Newfound, but there's a character in that novel who comes back, he's left and he comes back and they're doing this big development and he sees that they're going to erode their culture if they do this development. It's like basically we're going to put in a strip mall and add a Walmart, you know, mm-hmm. something like that. And this guy comes up to him in that novel and he says, look, who are you? You've been gone for 25 years, man. Yep. We've been here living with this without jobs and the world's moved past us. And this is a chance for us to kind of be part of the world. Essentially, you don't have any say in this. And I always remembered that when I was, because I read it when I was a kid, you know, in college. And I just remember it was, it was smart because, you know, your allegiances as the reader are with this guy who sees what they're going to lose. Right. But the guy who's been there understands like what they stand to gain. And there's a real, there's a real interesting conundrum about that. Like I remember when Walmart came to our hometown, that was a big deal. Cause you know, it wasn't like they put, they didn't really put 
put out of business a bunch of five and dimes, man. We didn't have anything. They put they put Kmart out of business. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's that's who they destroyed. Right. Now, see, I I grew up down in Bowling Green where you went to Western and with the proliferation of when they added the second mall, when they added Greenwood Mall and they added Walmart out there, you know, that whole strip. There used to be a a Woolworths downtown. Everything on Fountain Square Park used to be shopping. You know, now it's restaurants, art, you know, men's clothing. So I mean, you know, so I had like a I kind of kind of like a I mean, I don't have that same perspective as I did then. But I think like the point is, it was always more complicated. Appalachians and all those in different places, it's there are different calculations and there are different complications, right? And so it was just it was more complicated. And I think that Appalachia remains a complicated place, you know. Like, um, you know, my mom is Korean. I'm not going to say that it's as hard on her now as it was when she first got there, like in 1970. But I'm not going to tell you that it's easy on her either, right? You know, like it's so some things are different and some things are you know, better variations of the same, you know, but it's still hard. I mean, I mean, she still feels like an outsider and she raised two sons there and has lived there, you know, her entire years, life, yeah. you know, and I still feel that when I go back and I grew up there, you know, and a lot of that's being away and being protective of her and sort of, and understanding more clearly as an adult, uh, the difficulty she went through as, as a parent there and, and sort of being an outsider. So I think the Appalachian story is in some ways the same, but it's also different. And I think that, you know, there are, um, and I think that it's one of the rare instances. And, and I mean that sincerely where the internet has been a good force in Appalachia where it's allowed, you know, you know, I mean, if I, it's hard to know, but like if I was a young person in Appalachia now, like in high school and it would, the, and the student body makeup was the same as when I went to school there, I would have more of a sense. I would have had more of a sense of my Korean identity than I did then, you know, because right. there'd be, there'd be more of it to see, be more of it to connect with. It'd be easier for me to like look stuff up. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have, you know, I'm, I just I maybe would have felt a little less alone. And so I think that I think especially when I think about, you know, you know, gay kids in Appalachia, you know, like I feel like they have like a real place where they can see they can see a world that says like you belong where they well, that was not the case when I was growing up. And that in turn has created an Appalachia where they belong too, because, you know, those pockets of those kinds of cultures have sort of now have you know sort of gained purchase you know I don't, I don't pretend that it's easy or 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 you know as easy as it might be in a larger place that's more diverse and more economically diverse um but i think that's happening and i think that that's that's always the place with those isolated places like that you know like the hills keep out a lot of stuff they do and you know they, and it can be intimidating as an outsider going in you know just by just by reputation you know the thing that that cracks me up a little bit right on the edge, like the, the, the two Venn diagrams between Lexington and, and Appalachia for me is the gorge to see yeah. this, this place of natural wonder and beauty uh, yeah. that is isolated out in the sticks. And on weekend it is inhabited by Subarus and Volkswagens and tents that smell like yeah. patchouli versus, uh, you know, it, it's not exactly what you'd consider the native population. And it, uh, you know, can it be, the eco adventure tourism aspect 
that is that is kind of a movement is fascinating to me. I, I wish it were better land for golf. You know, when you find a, a good golf course there, it's either it's either in the bottom or it's right. on top. Right. That's just the nature of the land. So that's something that that I kind of keep an eye on. And I keep wanting there to be a st- more of a story there than there is. But, you know, things move slowly. Um, yeah. They, well, I mean, it, I mean, things do move slowly there because they can, you know. Yeah. And I think that there's still I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of, there's still a lot of problems there, obviously, you know, and there's a lot of, there's still a lot of hurdles there, you know what I mean? And the, there's still a lot of, you know, there's just a lot of complications that, that keep it. And I, I think you're right. I mean, you, you kind of want that story to be told and you want it to be a little bit more complex, but at the end of the day, it's, it's pretty simply just <laughs> what it is, you know, and, and that, that's kind of frustrating too, but you know, I think that that that's okay. That's okay in its own way as well. So. I'll get you out of here on a couple. You can do rapid fire with me. Um, what did you learn? What did you learn at the NLT at the National Links Trust Symposium? You were there in person. I watched online. Oh yeah. You know, I was only there for a day, but I, you know, I mean, I was only there for that first evening actually. But I, I felt like uh, I felt like what we learned is like you know, there's there there's a lot of interest around it, which is good. But I think like you know, even watch, even though they got that big check at the end, like they're gonna need like they're going to need like 12 of those big checks. It seems like to me, you know, to do some of the stuff they need to do. Right. Um, I was thinking about this the other day. I mean, I haven't, I mean, I've talked to those guys a little bit and, you know, I've written a story about, about them. And, um, but, you know, I, I think one thing that would be, I think one thing I think would be really interesting if there, if there was some way we could get the USGA to get involved. They've got half a billion dollars in cash they're just sitting yeah. on. <laughs> I mean, if there's some way that they could get involved to advance, that's what I mean with like these diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. Like I, I think that's something that the USGA should sort of take a good hard look at. I don't mean that they should do it, but I think that one thing that is clear from all the people I talk to is like you need the entire industry behind what they're doing, right? And that's going to be really hard to convince like equipment makers and, you know, sort of, you know, the top tier, top tier people across the industry, I think, to get involved in that. But I actually do think that it's in the benefit of everyone if we do that, because it's kind of what we've been talking about a little bit in this conversation, which is like, look, I think golf is so much more than what it appears to be on television. Right. And I think golf is such a really interesting game and the way i describe it to people that don't really understand golf is like look golf is a niche sport with many niches right right like it's got so many niches and like you can find one that's for you right like like you're talking about going down to lynch right like hell i didn't even know they had a damn golf course in lynch until you told me i was like how do they get a golf course in lynch but it looks great you know but like i mean that kind of thing like you don't expect there to be golf in harlan county i mean like you just don't you know and um, but of course there would be, why wouldn't there be golf in Harlem County? You know I mean? Um, so I think that that kind of stuff, like, I just think that the game can be so many, can be so much. There's so many variations of the game that we should try to embrace all of them and promote all of them as best we can. You know, like we don't need, uh, you know, we don't definitely don't need more private clubs. You know what I mean? We don't need more millionaire playgrounds. You know, and I, I've been fortunate to go to a lot of those millionaire playgrounds, but like we don't need more of those. We need more, you know, that's what I mean. Like I laugh about this all the time. There's a there's a course here called Raccoon International. It's been for sale for like five years and I pass it every day on the way into work, you know, and it's just like a ridiculous name for a golf course. <laughs> um, but like 
But if you came up and you wanted to go, I'm happy to go there. Like, I just want to go play golf. Like, I mean, like, I, I like all the stuff that everybody else likes on Instagram. I like the nice equipment. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, I'm a clothes, I mean, I am a clothes whore, you know, like, I like all that stuff. But, you know, I did that. I just like playing golf, man. I just, I mean, I do. I just, I just like playing golf. And uh, I don't really, I'm not, in a way, I'm not super particular about it, you know? Do you think golf is in a public golf? Okay. Daily, daily fee or muni, however you want to answer that. Do you think that's in a better spot now than it was five years ago? I don't know if I'm a qualified person to say this or not, but um, You're a golfer. I feel like it is. I feel like it is. I feel like more people, I feel like because, you know, we've had this big boom. So I think it, obviously, I think it's in a, I think it's in a better place. I think, you know, what's challenging for someone like you and me who play a lot, like it is frustrating when you go to a daily fee course and there are a lot of people out there that don't know the etiquette and it takes like four and a half to five hours to get around with a cart and you're waiting on every hole. I mean, that stuff's hard. You know, that stuff's hard, you know, like when you're doing that, like that gets frustrating. Um, but, uh, But I think that also speaks to the health of the game. And that's what I mean. Like we need, I think we need more, people to understand like it doesn't have to be hard it doesn't have to be 18 holes it could be nine and it's fine you know like not to use that tagline but like just sort of um but yeah it seems like it's in a better spot to me well i I hope so and i hope five years from now that that's true too if you didn't play golf what would you be doing with all that time well i don't play that much golf it may seem like i do but i don't play much golf i you know i mean if i wasn't playing golf I'd, i'd be riding i'd probably be riding a little bit more okay um but the way I work and it kind of works out for my riding time is like when I'm really riding, like I'll ride three hours in the morning and then I need a big break. And then I work at night when everyone goes to bed. So like, so it kind of, that kind of schedule works out. It's kind of a weird thing and it sounds pretentious, but you can only think hard about six hours a day when you're really working like on a novel or a story or something like that. And so you need a lot of kind of Lee Smith, one of my mentors, she calls it staring out the window time. So that's what golf is for me. So, and so if I didn't play golf at all, God, I don't know, I'd probably read more or uh, I'd probably just read more, you know, or I'd have more projects to do around the house. I'm sure that we would think of something. We would get ourselves into some sort of, not that Mary would give me something to do, but we'd think, let's try this out and see if we can <laughs> do this. You know, we would, we would construct some project for ourselves. Yeah, that would be. That sounds terrible. That sounds like an awful hobby replacement oh, or, or you're just a, an awful human being for hiding in golf instead of doing all these things that you ought to be doing. <laughs> I do them both. <laughs> I know. I'll get you out here on this. What's the, what's the course you wish you could revisit? Um, I could revisit. What's, what's the favorite one that you want to, it's at the top of the already done list. Oh, that's a tough one. Actually. I don't, I don't know if I have one that I'm like dying to get back to really. I mean, um, I mean, I, you know, you, as you know, I played Pinehurst too a couple of times and I have a lot of affinity for that for obvious reasons, you know, um, you know, uh, just in case people are like, you know, my, my, some of my, my brother's ashes are there and I, I wrote about that. So that that's probably the place that I always go back to, but that was in golf digest, right? People can find that. Was Esquire? Is that okay? That was the Esquire piece. Yeah. Okay. But I think like for the, but even if that hadn't happened, it would be the course I'd want to go back to because one of the things that I realized when I first played that course was, uh, and I have a piece that I, I need to edit for for Andy at the Fried Egg <laughs> about this, but um, 
I understood architecture so much the first time I played it. Like, I mean, I've been writing about it and I've done a piece on Doug, but you could just see like his imprint, Ross's imprint on all the courses I'd ever played up until that point, because he, he did so many and he said, he's such a father of golf architecture that I, I could understand his influence when I played that course. And then the routing is so interesting. It's not a big piece of land and, you know, and it, you know, it's kind of funny. Like we talk about like all this tree removal and stuff, but you know, most of those corridors are framed by pine trees and yet it still feels expansive and intimate at the same time there's just so many weird contradictions i think about number two that make it such a an interesting walk and it's one of those courses when you walk off of you're like i could play that every day of my life and never play anywhere else and every time would be interesting and 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 it doesn't have as much to do with the green complexes i think as maybe some people think from the challenge of it i mean i just think like there is just an interesting rhythm to the land there you know, that comes from the area it's built in because it's so walkable. I mean, you walk off the green and you're at the next tee. And I just think like that's one that I think is sort of like, you know, is infinitely interesting to me and the place that I would go back to again and again. The places I the place that I've only played once and I most want to go back to would probably be the ocean course, which I'm going to go back to in March. And I'm going to get to see that again, just because I had kind of a truncated round. I didn't get to see all of it. But one of the things I found interesting about that course is, and this is a terrible thing for someone who's as bad at golf as I am, is like, I didn't find it to be that hard. I mean, I didn't play well or score well. But what was interesting to me about it was, is that if you are a good golfer and the wind wasn't blowing the day I played, but what I thought was interesting was that it did not, it seemed very gettable to me. If you played the appropriate tees and you were a 10 handicap, I don't think it'd be, I mean, if somebody's going to tell me I'm an idiot for saying this, but I don't think it'd be hard for you to break like 90 on it at all. Because now if you can't miss the fairway, if you miss the fairway, you're done. So, I mean, there's a lot of caveats to what I'm saying here, but, but it was interesting that like, it did not seem, it's not, as, it's not even like super visually intimidating in the way you might think a course like that is intimidating when it has like all this kind of history and aura around it, you just get there like, wow, I mean, this is like, the fairways are pretty generous. You know, he's got some severe fall offs on the greens. Like, you know, they're really punched up and there's some fall offs, but like, you got a pretty decent short game. I mean, I think you could be okay. Not every time, but a lot of times I just found like, I, I expected I'd played some, I've played a lot of die courses and it did not. I mean, I played bully rock in Maryland where they had a U.S. I think they had a U.S. Women's AM there or something, and I thought it was a lot harder. You know, I mean, I, maybe I was wrong and I was new to golf at the time, so I didn't know as much. But I just found that it. And I, and I talked to the caddy about it. He said, "Yeah, he goes if the wind is down, it's totally gettable. You know, the greens don't run. The greens. I don't think the greens ever really run that fast. Like past Palin is really sticky." Right. So they don't they don't really run that fast. And because it's a resort, you know, there's a lot of flat. There are a lot of flat greens. there. There's not a lot of undulation to the greens. Right. So you got slow greens and they're flat. Right. I mean, so it's kind of amazing. But, you know, again, but but way back. But you can go back to the back tees and you're like, this is a monster. Right. I don't care if you hit it 350. It's a monster. I mean, it's just a monster. And then if you add the wind into that, then. You know, so I just, that's an interesting course to me. Just kind of, it's pretty fascinating. So.
Hey, thanks for stopping by for this episode of the Blind Shots Podcast. Michael is an inspiration, a renaissance man with as unique a collection of Venn diagram life interests as you're going to find inside the golf world. I get smarter every time I listen to him. Remember to head over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening from and leave a rating and review for the show. In fact, each time someone leaves a five-star rating and review for this prodigious podcast, their putts get 5% straighter for the next six months. Guaranteed. Hope you've enjoyed what you heard here today. If you didn't like what you heard, sorry about that. I can't do anything about it now, but we will try to do better and be more interesting next time. And I hope you will join me again next time here on the Blind Shots Podcast. Until then, stay safe, be smart, remember to hydrate throughout the day, and as always, when you have the choice, do decide to go for it and take dead aim. I don't need to be better lit, right? This is all audio. Yeah, this is, this is not going on YouTube. Okay. Face, face made for radio, man. Yeah. <laughs>